0: Something is coming, something hungry for blood. A shadow grows on the wall behind you, swallowing you in darkness. It is almost here. An army of troglodytes charge into the chamber. Wait a minute, do you hear that? That, that sound? Boom. Boom. Dome. that didn't come from the troglodytes Know that that came from something else the demogorgon fireball him I'd, I'd have to roll 13 or higher that's not how fireball works w- wait is this the two headed monkey snake or the petal face thing alright time for some Eldritch history This week's episode is all about Stranger Things. Spoiler warning, anything from season one, episode one, all the way to season four, episode seven is free game. So if you're not caught up, maybe don't listen to this episode and I'll be updating this or adding a separate special episode for volume two of season four once I can watch it. With that out of the way, Stranger Things is essentially the Duffer Brothers, the makers of the show. It's their love letter to the 80s. Especially the the movies at the time. Things like E.T., Ghostbusters, Nightmare on Elm Street, Firestarter. They're all referenced in one way or another. But the brothers have specifically called out the works of two creators as the main inspirations. The two Stevens, as they call them, because it's Steven Spielberg and Stephen King. And a whole different podcast can and probably has been made about all those 80s movies references. But I'm going to focus on the d and aspect of Stranger Things. Because it's, it's in the show's DNA. The kids are shown to be playing d They have things like the Dungeon Board Game or Dragon Magazines, miniatures. They draw their characters. They even compare themselves to character classes. And most importantly, they explain and rationalize the strange things that are happening around them using concepts from d And this is due to the kids having played D&D for at least four years as of the first season. They mentioned that Mike's sister Nancy had once dressed up as an elf for their elder tree campaign. And there's hints of other campaigns that they've gone on throughout the show. There's drawings of characters being bitten by and stabbing a blue dragon. Lucas's notebook has the cover for uh, Adventures in the Haunted Caverns that he appears to have drawn himself. They bring up the Bloodstone Pass in which the party had been split and trolls took them out one by one. Mike tries to help Will snap out of the Mind Flayer's influence by bringing up a time when the party had escaped into the sewers and there were these big insect things and Will the Wise, Will's character, was able to cast Fog Cloud and save everyone. And then my favorite one is there's a flashback to Will drawing their party and he's giving him green fireballs because he ran out of red crayons, which his mom (laughs) says look like cabbages. But these green fireballs are actually a reference to the Acquisitions Incorporated show, which is Dungeon Mastered by Chris Perkins. And Acquisitions Incorporated is made up of the guys from Penny Arcade, a webcomic, and they also put on the PAX Expos gaming conventions. And they were a really early D&D podcast, actually, is how they started out, back when the fourth edition of the game was coming out. But in one of their live shows, Chris Perkins calls out that there's these green flames. And he stops the show. He gets up and he addresses the audience and says that this is actually a reference to Big Trouble in Little China. So whenever he says green flame, he asks them all to repeat after him. Green flame? (laughs) But I don't want this episode to just be, oh, here's this Easter egg. Instead, I want to focus on those main concepts that the kids use to explain the weird things, the strange things that are happening around them, to go over why it makes sense for them to equate their demigorgon with D&D's demigorgon, for example, and how these comparisons are accurate and how they miss the mark a little bit which i like actually the show would be very different if it had actual dnd creatures popping up as opposed to things that are similar enough for kids to make a comparison and use that as an understanding so i really like the way that they've used these concepts from the game in the show but there's quite a few things to get through so let's just hop right in starting at the beginning in season one There's a few main things to talk about this season, the biggest one, of course, being the Demogorgon, the big bad monster that abducts Will, kills Barb, and various other nameless residents of Hawkins. And in many ways, Stranger Things' Demogorgon acts like a predator. Specifically, it's been compared to the shark from Jaws or the, the Xenomorph from Alien. The Jaws motif can be most blatantly seen by its attraction to blood. And it being vaguely humanoid, but eyeless and faceless, calls back to that alien type of creature. And in-universe, they only start calling it the Demogorgon after Eleven uses the Demogorgon miniature, which the boys had been using in their D&D campaign, to represent the monster that had taken Will. But there are a few things about it that make sense for it to be called the Demogorgon but certainly not its physical appearance. On Stranger Things, the Demogorgon is this tall, gaunt, pale creature with no face instead of having this petal-like maw that opens up with dozens if not hundreds of teeth. In D&D, the Demogorgon is described as this. His skin is plated with snake-like scales. His body and legs are those of a giant lizard. His twin necks resemble snakes, and his thick tail is forked. Demogorgon has two heads, which bear the visages of evil baboons or perhaps mandrills. Rather than having arms, he has great tentacles. So yeah, completely different. But honestly, this probably would look pretty ridiculous <laughs> on TV. You'd need some real serious CGI to pull off that evil mandrel snake <laughs> look. In D&D, he's also described as a demon lord of the abyss. In fact, the prince of demons. And the Abyss is this infinite realm of evil chaos ruled by all kinds of demons based off of various folklore and mythology. The Demogorgon himself is based off of a term associated with an evil entity as well. I noted that he had two heads, and in D&D, each head has a unique personality, and they would fight amongst themselves. And it was said that this was the only thing keeping Demogorgon from taking control of the whole abyss, is that he would fight with himself and lose out. And in the game, he has a whole bunch of abilities that have changed throughout editions. He dates back to to the original version of the game one of the first supplements he first appeared but some mainstay powers and ones that i can see specifically reflected in stranger things are his ability to hypnotize drive people insane or make them just utterly fear him just with a gaze i think these type of things are reflected through various characters in the show Joyce is seemingly going mad and most characters who encounter the Demogorgon being rightfully terrified. In the game, his tail could also drain the life out of people, and his tentacles caused a withering disease, which could be an interesting tie to the quote-unquote frostbite that Carol got on her leg, Steve's friend who was at the pool party. I'm curious if that's what they were going with that, because they never really explained that, so I wonder if it was a callback to the influence of the Demogorgon d ds Demogorgon could also cast Darkness, which is mentioned on the uh, news report the day after Will Goes Missing that there was a series of citywide blackouts demogorgon also had telekinesis which isn't shown very often but there's a couple instances in stranger things where when he's chasing will the lock on the door moves seemingly because of the demogorgon and then when nancy and jonathan encounter the wounded deer in the woods it's dragged off by an unseen force using some form of telekinesis And then rare for a demon lord, Demogorgon is able to plane shift, which is very similar to, in Stranger Things, the Demogorgon being able to make those small gates through the wall or the ceiling or the tree when he's... A lot of the times in in the buyer's house for some reason, he seems real good at opening gates there. Uh, But in various places, he seems to be able to go from the upside down to Hawkins. In the game, the Demogorgon rules over the 88th layer of the abyss called the gaping maw which is this great briny sea broken up by tall sharp rocky promontories and there's uh several origin stories but the one i found the most fun is that amoth this god of justice and mercy was said to have struck demogorgon in the head which caused his head to split in two but he didn't die from it and that's why he has two heads in the game (laughs) which is just a random fun it feels like an old mythology tale And like all the monsters that would come to be on the show, this first one, the Demogorgon, obviously isn't the creature from D&D, but I think they pulled enough aspects of it that you can see it as an inspiration while also being able to make their own monster. And I think this going off in their own direction, making their own thing is most seen in the upside down. This dark reflection of Hawkins that is filled with these floating spores. It may or may not be radioactive or toxic. There's these creepy vines crawling over the place. And it's home to these terrible monsters. Now, in the show, they do compare it to what appears to be a D&D term, the Veil of Shadows. They flip through into their D&D binder and open up into a page that looks like it's straight out of an old Dragon or Dungeon magazine. And that describes, The Veil of Shadows is a dimension that is a dark reflection or echo of our world. It is a place of decay and death, a plane out of phase, a place of monsters. It is right next to you, and you don't even see it. And Mr. Clark later says that it's an echo of the material plane where necrotic and shadow magic, and then he gets cut off by the kids. Uh, But there's actually not, well, there is a thing called the Veil of Shadows, but it's just this creepy wood. It's not really a big thing in D&D, and it's certainly not this alternate dimension. But there is something called the Shadowfell, which is definitely what they were influenced by, which is that dark reflection or echo of the material plane, which is essentially just Earth or Hawkins in in the case of Stranger Things. But it's a place that it's bleak and desolate, full of decay and death, There's a lack of color and light, and almost like all the color has been leached out of it. Just like in the show, you can cast the spell Shadow Walk to get here, though there are natural portals and they usually randomly open up in areas of very heavy darkness. There's also this interesting concept that is very rarely used, usually only in some of the novels for D&D, but it's called the Shadow Fringe which is this edge of where the shadow fell and the material plane meet. And it's used by wizards to travel really long distances quickly. And it's filled with this tendrils of shadow stuff that ebbed and flowed like tides. Once I read about it, it reminded me of where Eleven goes when she's looking in on people using her powers, that empty black landscape where she's walking in this dark water. I was very much reminded of that. I don't know if anybody in the show even knows about this thing, but that's where my mind went when I first heard about it. I was like, oh, that's an interesting way to look at what that space is in the show because they've never really quite explained that. But in general the the Shadowfell is this dark and twisted landscape. It's recognizable but altered in some way. Buildings could be in a different style, use different materials, they could be in different locations too, and they can be they can look completely normal or be ruins of themselves. But the surrounding landscape is ever-changing. If you go to the Shadowfell, say you're in a forest, you'll wind up in a forest in the Shadowfell. But as you start to leave there, it'll change more and more. There'll be things like forests of grasping tendrils or mushrooms with twitching or blinking human faces. And this ever changing nature results in relatively frequent but small shadow quakes, is what they call them earthquakes. Again, very similar to something that happens in season four when the teenagers visit. Those earthquakes keep happening. Shadowfell is made up of this shadow stuff, and it can be used by illusionists to create semi real monsters or spells. And prolonged exposure to the shadow fell can lead to transformations into shadow creatures. The most well-known of these are shadow dragons that breathe out these withering shadow breath attacks or the Shadarkai, which are pale shadow-influenced fey humans and or elves, depending on what edition you're looking at. Once again, they've taken elements from a D&D concept, the Shadowfell, but made it their own, in this case, the Upside Down. I kind of appreciate them not just using the D&D term in this case, because the Upside Down has more of this weird, organic, alien style of conception behind it. It reminds me a lot of the planet they visit and get the alien from in alien this creepy organic there's stuff floating in the air type of thing as opposed to just being oh there's shadows <laughs> and before moving on to season two i want to briefly bring up the conception of eleven and her powers in the show the kids frequently refer to her as a magic user or a mage or a wizard which she definitely uses things that are analogous to spells in D. but in season two murray actually refers to her as a kid that has psionic powers which i feel is the more apt description from D. D&D for what she does. The psionics are the more mental-based instead of being magic, so Professor X would be a psionic person versus Doctor Strange being a wizard. And Eleven is able to, kind of floats the line between what she can do being what would be a spell in D&D versus a psionic power. She's got telekinesis, she could scry or astral project to spy on people from a distance. She seems to disintegrate or banish the Demogorgon and eventually number one. But the biggest direct correlation between what she does and D&D powers is that they frequently refer to the opening to the Upside Down as being a gate, which in D&D is a very high level spell, gate, and it specifically connects two planes of existence. And obviously this was also just a term from other properties, uh, Stargate specifically I'm thinking of, but I like that specific call out to a D and d terminology for hey, taking a gate from two different planes and connecting them. In season two, we see the introduction of the Mind Flare or Shadow Monster, this shadowy figure. that looms large over hawkins and specifically will and it tries to use its mental influence over will who is exposed to it during his time in the upside down to take over his mind and then invade hawkins The Mind Flayer in D&D definitely has some of those more mental-based powers. It's pretty different from the one on Stranger Things. In D&D, Mind Flayers, or Illithids, as they're also known, are aberrations, these Cthulhu-esque monsters, many of which come from a place called the Far Realm, a plane of madness inspired by Lovecraft, essentially. The Mind Flayers are said to be from a distant future. They travel back in time to escape the collapse of their empire. They seek to expand their domain over all other life forms. They control their minds as obedient thralls or consume the brains of their victims while they're still alive. Physically, they're similar in stature to lanky humans, but their most prominent feature are these four tentacles that come out just above their mouth. Looking almost like Davy Jones from Pirates of the Caribbean. And they have this elongated head. Their skin is this mauve greenish violet. It's rubbery and slick with mucus when they're healthy. (laughs) And random odd fun fact, they have a faint odor of onions, garlic, or sometimes vanilla. (laughs) Some potentially very nice smelling monsters coming at you. In terms of their characterization, they're most often megalomaniacs. They seek no less than world-slash-universe-slash-planar domination, and they see themselves as bringing order to a chaotic universe of lesser beings. Ability-wise, they have psionics, so similar to Eleven, these mental-based powers, especially this thing called a mind blast that could knock many people unconscious. They're also able to levitate, detect thoughts, dominate and charm creatures. And using that ability, they have all kinds of various slaves that are bound to them. Creatures like Grimlocks, Ogres, Quagoths, and Troglodytes, which are also mentioned in season one just before the Demogorgon shows up in their D&D campaign. They encounter some Troglodytes. And these creatures that they enslave are deemed not edible. Either they don't quite have the mental capacity that uh, the mind flayers are looking for, or some other quality makes them not a tasty treat, as the mind flayers literally eat brains. Society-wise, the mind have colonies with, with some of the bigger ones numbering in thousands of inhabitants. And these colonies are actually a hive mind controlled by a, a creature known as an elder brain, which actually is made up of the brains of all the dead mind in a colony. But it's this gigantic brain that floats or sits in this briny pool and they have absolute control over a colony. They're literally in the heads of everybody in it. But on occasion, small groups of mind flayers called Inquisitions, if they're very small or if they're a little bit bigger, they could be known as cults. And they're sent out to do specific missions outside of the colony. <laughs> a famous example of one of these is the Elder Brains' plan to extinguish all the suns because they hate the sunlight. <laughs> That's the scope of some of these plans of the mind flayers. Just we're going to destroy all the stars. <laughs> As far as how mind flayers come about, there's this process known as ceramorphosis, and this is how they reproduce. Each mind flayer, at some point in their life, will lay a clutch of eggs or two, and from that, little tadpoles will sprout. And for about a decade, they hang out in the elder brain's briny pool, eating each other and other brains that are thrown in there. And once they're ready, they're implanted, usually into a humanoid, like humans, elves, dwarves, stuff like that. And once they're in the creature, they devour the brain and then merge with the body and transform it into a new mind flare. I think it's interesting to note that the mind flare is the first entity specifically named because one of the kids thought of a D and D creature and applied it because of the similarities. I think that goes to illustrate that although physically very different, the Mind Flayer obviously isn't this Davy Jones looking character, but in terms of what it can do and what its goals are, it's very similar to this idea of Mind Flayers from D&D. Very powerful, mentally able to dominate creatures or take control of people such as Will and seeks to invade and take control of everything or kill them. As Will mentions, it wants to destroy everything. So I think from that aspect, they really chose a good name for this creature and a good reference point for the kids to understand this alien intellect, what it could possibly want with them and how it's going to go about its goals. And although not specifically called out to this in the show, I think it's interesting to note that the introduction of the Mind Flayer also introduces these tunnels under Hawkins that are spreading out from the gate and causing rot and infection basically just spread throughout the town. And this really reminds me of a concept in D and D called the Underdark. It's specific to one campaign setting, the Forgotten Realms, but there's this huge network of underground caverns and caves, and it's where mind flayers are usually found in that setting. There's bad air, poisonous fumes, and there's uh. So in Baldur's Gate Three, uh, upcoming D and D video game with mind flayers as the main enemy, there's also these things in the Underdark called Bibberbangs plant or fungi growths that swell up as people get too close to them and then explode if they're touched or attacked, then releases this poisonous cloud, which remind me of the things that Hopper and Dustin encounter when they're in those underground tunnels that Will maps out. And speaking of that, the whole part where Will is making maps for what's going on underneath reminds me very much of some of the classic ways of playing the game where it was very much about you having the map where you were in order to navigate these intricate dungeons that could sprawl for miles, really. And those Mind flare tadpoles that I mentioned, how they reproduce, remind me of a teaser from the end of season one where Will had this little slug tadpole thing that he coughed up. And then also Dart and the other demodogs who grew from these little supposedly the same thing. It's how the Demogorgon grows and reproduces as opposed to being Mind Flayer, but still very much reminded me of that. And with the Mind flare being the big bad, my mind went there. And the mind flayer continues to be the big bad for season three, although in that one, he's also referenced to as the spider monster. And this time he takes on this more corporeal form. It's still vaguely like the outline of the mind flayer. We saw the shadow monster being in season two, but now it's made up of flesh of the flayed people and various animals. And that whole weird gross body horror thing reminds me of the mind flayers in D&D are prone to experimentation. They create things like brain golems or Nyrala golems which brain golems are exactly what they sound like. They're vaguely humanoid shape made up completely of brains. And Nyrala golems are made up of flesh, Mind Flayer mucus, and this underdark fungus. And they have this somewhat humanoid torso, but their head and their limbs are all tentacles. There's also these creatures known as the oblex, which are... The results of experiments on oozes and they can absorb people and basically take out all their memories and stuff and then create this copy of the person using its oozy body. And fun fact, these horns were actually created by Nolan Whale, who was a -a Make-A-Wish kid who spent the day with the D&D designers and helped them on a bunch of stuff, including the design on the Oblux, which is (laughs) a completely terrifying creature that you wouldn't expect a kid to make but there you go and these three i think are the probably the big influences on the spider monster mind flare from stranger things the brain golem the Nyrola golem and the oblex this amalgamation of various parts that forms into a bigger hole that can know things that it probably shouldn't and is really really horrifying Mind Flayers also create these things known as cranium rats, which are rats that have this exposed brain that is able to use iconic ability and have their own kind of hive mind type of thing, which I think was called out with the rats from season three, eating all the chemicals and stuff. And then they also become part of the Mind Flayers body. And I, I I really like these things. I once ran a campaign where they went down to the sewers and encountered this horde of them that really creeped out the players. <laughs> once they started coming after them, the players just noped right out of there. <laughs> Mind flayers also create nerve swimmers are what they called and these are tadpoles that aren't quite ready yet they implant them in people not to turn them into mind flayers but to torture and cause pain and that reminded me of the scene where Eleven is attacked by the mind flayer and that little piece of it is still lodged in her leg that's like oh hey (laughs) maybe that was inspired by these nerve swimmers there's a bunch of other things that mind players are known for making but one i want to bring up just because i think it's hilarious is the intellect devourer which are essentially just brains with four little legs that run around and if they find a victim they can drain their intelligence and then take the place of their actual brain and then run around in the body (laughs) And I've seen some people say that that's what the Flayed, like Billy and the other victims, are. But Billy at least has his own personality, which isn't really how an intellect devourer works. There's no coming back from that. You're gone once the intellect devourer gets, yeah. So I think the Flayed are more like the enslaved victims of the Mind Flayers. Specifically creatures like the Gith or the Durgar were changed through Mind Flayer experimentations, but eventually are able to break free. Then at the very end of season three, we get a news report about the fire and everything happening in Hawkins. And we get the beginnings of the rumblings of the satanic panic, which would pay off in a big way in season four with Jason and the rest of the basketball team as they go after Eddie and the rest of the Hellfire Club. But in the real world, the satanic panic spread over all kinds of things. But in regards to D&D, it really started because of the 1979 disappearance of James Dallas Egbert III, now, at 16, he was already attending Michigan State, and in that year he left a suicide note and couldn't be found. And his parents hired the private investigator, William Deere, who theorized that something happened while James was playing a game of D&D, almost like a LARP, in the steam tunnels under the school. And it kind of spurned on a frenzy of this game is evil or corrupting the kids and stuff like that. What actually happened was that James had attempted to drug himself and he went into the steam tunnels to die, basically, but he survived. And then from there, he hopped around from friend's house to friend's house, He eventually wound up in New Orleans, where he again attempted suicide and failed. And then after that, he actually called the P.I. Deer and gave himself up. And then sadly, a year later, a a year and a day to when he first went missing, he died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Just the year after that, Rona Jaffe publishes... Mazes and Monsters, which is based off of the press around what happened with James. Some sources say that she wrote it in a matter of days in order to be the first to write something about this. I don't know if that's true. That sounds a bit (laughs) much, but it's a weird kind of idea of how the frenzy around this started up. And in fact, just a year after it was published, Mazes and Monsters became a TV movie and actually starred Tom Hanks in his first starring role. And this movie was really a sensationalized version of the tale, saying how this kid lost his identity while playing D &D and D. He couldn't differentiate between the game and real life anymore, which is what a lot of the stories coming out at the time were saying. Four years after James died, the P.I. William Deere actually published his own book called The Dungeon Master. This was him attempting to clear the air about what had happened in some ways. And he said that the the media really blew his D&D theory out of proportion and sensationalized it. He was just giving a theory, whereas the media basically took it as fact that this is definitely what happened, as opposed to, like, maybe he just went down there to play a game and some, he got lost or some kind of accident happened. And when he went down to New Orleans to get James, the PI promised him that he wouldn't tell what had happened, but eventually he would years after James had died. It was more a tale of he was a 16 year old in college already and stress from that and then drug use and depression and the like is more what happened to James as opposed to he couldn't tell that he wasn't his D&D character or anything like that. But by the time Deere's book came out, there was already a bunch of other stories about the hazards of playing D&D. In 1982, a kid named Irving Pulling shot himself in the chest and his mom, Patricia Pulling, a year later forms BAD, which is Bothered About Dungeons and Dragons, which is actually the basis of the article that Eddie is reading in episode one of season four. And Bad described D&D as a fantasy role-playing game which uses demonology, witchcraft, voodoo, murder, rape, blasphemy, suicide, assassination, insanity, sex perversion, homosexuality, prostitution, satanic-type rituals, gambling, barbarism, cannibalism, sadism, desecration, demon summoning, necromantics, divination, and other teachings. And Mrs. Poling actually got a PI license and consulted with law enforcement. She served as an expert witness in gaming-related lawsuits. She even appeared on an episode of 60 Minutes, where they interviewed her about her son's death and also Gary Gygax about the influences of the game. I'll I'll put a link so you can check that out. It's quite interesting. A lot of the satanic panic along d d was really just people not understanding the game. They would see images of these demons and stuff and assume that's what it was about as opposed to combating it, whether it be cases of suicide like the pullings or sometimes murders that would be associated just because somebody involved played d d at some point. So it was all really sensationalized at the time without diving into what was actually happening. Reports saying things like this X number of kids committed suicide and also played d d therefore D&D resulted in their suicide even though later reports would actually point out that if you look at the numbers people who played games like this had a lower rate of suicide than kids in general at the time so definitely terrible stories of what happened with James and Irving but putting the blame on D&D was probably not the most accurate assessment of what happened with them and, and while there was definitely this satanic panic going around, I don't think there was ever actually any town-wide mob hunting for a group of D&D players. <laughs> though definitely doesn't help that they named themselves the Hellfire Club, which, of course, is a reference to both the villains of the X-Men comics, which was also, in turn, a reference to real-world clubs in the 1700s, which had various levels of debauchery and blasphemy. Uh, some had mock religious rituals, or feasts, Uh, but the name was more of a joke or specifically designed to shock the outside world as opposed to being actually hellfire, satanic-based, or anything like that. And then finally, in season four, we get a new big bad whose name is Vecna, or Henry Creel, or number one, and he's able to exert his influence from the upside-down and puts Vecna's curse on the people, such as Chrissy Cunningham, Fred Benson, Max Mayfield, Patrick McKinney, and potentially Nancy Wheeler. Again, volume two hasn't dropped yet, so not sure exactly what's going on with her yet. But in this cursed state, they have headaches and nightmares, have recurring visions, and then eventually Vecna visits them. And drawing from their fears or guilt or depression, he torments them and then eventually kills them. Now, if you want to learn more about Vecna in D&D, you can check out the first episode of this podcast, which is all about that, but I'll give a brief rundown here too. Essentially, Vecna in D&D was a powerful wizard and eventual lich. He overcame his own death and became this undead magic user, and eventually he was betrayed by his lieutenant, whose name was Cass, and he was thought dead. But his hand and his eye were left out in the world and they'd exert their influence and corrupt people. But he wasn't quite dead and he eventually returned and sought to become a god. Uh, Once again, his plans were thwarted and he was banished to the Demiplane of Dread, which is part of the Ravenloft setting of D&D. Think gothic horror and stuff like that. And interestingly, in recent years, the Demiplane of Dread are said to be part of the Shadowfell, like a little pocket of that. So like the upside down, essentially, which is interesting. Uh, Once again, he was able to escape that fate through trickery, and he actually did manage to ascend to godhood in D&D, and he became a god of secrets. And I really like the parallels between... Vecna from D&D and the one in Stranger Things, you got this powerful magic user, quote unquote, who is thought dead multiple times. Henry Creel is thought dead by his father and Eleven is told that number one is gone. And I would assume at least some point they would think that he was killed when Eleven booted him to the upside down. There's also this dwelling on the secrets of he's able to exploit it for his curse in Stranger Things. And exploiting people's secrets to gain power over them was a big thing for Vecna in D&D. And then there's also these visual nods to Vecna's hand and eye from the game, which was his left hand and left eye were cut off when he was betrayed. But if you look in the Stranger Things, the Vecna design, his left hand is more elongated and more bestial, almost monstrous. And he uses, I think he always uses his left hand. He, maybe at some point he uses his right. But whenever I notice that he was using his left hand to do the final element of his curse to break the bones and suck at the eyes, which again goes with the eye of Vecna. And then his father gouges out his own eyes. Just some fun visual representations of that on screen. As Eddie, in fact, points out that the Vecna in the game doesn't have an eye or a hand. There's also the Demo Bats in the Upside Down in season four, which they haven't been called that on the show, but there's been merchandise with that Demo Bat Slayer and stuff like that, which when I saw them, when they latched on to Steve, I immediately thought of Sturges, these giant mosquito bat things that'll suck the blood out of you. I'm imagining we'll get more scenes with them and hopefully a reference to them being Demo Bats or whatever they'll call them in the show but I'm excited to see what Stranger Things has in store for us with volume two of season four, which drops the day this podcast goes out. And once again, I'll update with any new information. I'll probably tack it onto this and just have a separate download. So if you already listen to this, you don't have to listen to the whole thing again, just for the extra info. And I'm also excited by what they're going to do with season five all signs seem to point to the mind flare being the final big bad but i'm interested to see if they'll bring in any other elements from D. As far as that goes, the repeated spider motif has me thinking that maybe they'll do something with Lolf, the demon queen of spiders. It seems to be a big part of Vecna's thing. And then the mind flayer itself looks like a spider. But if not, I'm hoping that, okay, I mean, theory time, really. I don't want to, I didn't want to spend this whole time just doing crazy fan theories. But I hope at some point they follow back all the vines from the upside down and it leads to some kind of entity like the elder brain for the mind flayer. Maybe it's physical manifestation on the upside down that they have to go and defeat to finish it off for good in the end. All right, <laughs> again, enough about that. Again, I'll have various links in the show notes, including one to my website, eldritchhistory.com, where I'll have even more visual References, images of the various monsters in D&D, videos of things like the Stranger Things cast playing D&D. They've done that a few times, and it's really fun. There's a few songs I'll link to, and then various other crossovers between D&D and Stranger Things. They've had a few comics specifically about their D&D characters, and then even a starter set for D&D based on Stranger Things, including an adventure that was written by Will the Wise, essentially. It's pretty fun. But once again, thank you very much for listening. This has been Eldritch History, and I'm your host, Jacob Tomlinson-Korst. And until next time, may you always make your saving throw, especially against evil wizards from other dimensions. Hopefully you got your favorite song on your phone.